You are walking down a wooded path early on a summer's evening. The light filtering through the canopy above has turned golden, dappling the path with low beams of orange light. The evening insects begin to sing their songs, unbothered by your journey through their forest cathedral. Eventually you begin to hear new sounds, people laughing and singing up ahead. The walls of the trees on either side of you begin to thin, and up ahead you see a clearing. Your footsteps quicken as you sense your journey is at an end. The path weaves towards the clearing, and as you step around a tree, it unfolds before you. People all around with flowers and food. Some are bringing forth wood for a truly massive pyramid of sticks and logs, preparing for a bonfire. Welcome to Midsummer. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Baba Yaga, our podcast about history, culture, and sustainability. Um, this week, we're diving into the Midsummer ritual. Um, it's going to be super exciting and fertile. <laughs> I- <laughs> I am Devin. Um, I have a master's in American legal history and indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I have, well, I'm working on a PhD in medieval history. So this is going to be our first full episode. It's going to be all about Midsummer, which is a European festival, and so it will mostly be me interrogating Sonia Sounds good. I'm sitting in my chair. Devin's got the light shining directly in my face. I'm ready to answer any questions. Excellent. Let's get into it on this sweltering summer evening. Okay, so to start off, Sonia, uh, I guess we should really just explain what exactly Midsummer is, uh, when it happens in the year, and just the sort of like basic introductory principle of midsummer. Absolutely. So in the northern hemisphere, the summer solstice happens around June 22nd. This is when the north pole is at its maximum tilt towards the sun, which creates the longest period of daylight in the year. Uh, especially in the Arctic Circle, there can be continuous daylight around the summer solstice. And this word actually comes from the Latin solstetit, which means the sun stood still. So it's this very ancient idea of kind of time and the sun itself stopping for a bit. So with this moment of pause that you're talking about with the solstice, um, do you want to tell us sort of like why we decided to start our journey through the year with midsummer and the summer solstice yeah so i thought it was important to start with the summer solstice because when we're looking at this project a big part of it is looking at how different uh, rituals festivals and sort of celebrations have changed over time and how we understand ourselves has changed with the passage of time And I think the summer solstice is a really great place to start with something like that because it's such an old holiday. Like, this is a holiday that has been celebrated in some way or another for potentially thousands of years. There is some discussion that, you know, Stonehenge was potentially part of a summer solstice solar kind of rituals. And we have this long history of it and how these festivals and rituals have evolved over time. And I think looking at how people have taken this central idea of, hey, it's warm and bright and nice outside again, and how they've used that in different contexts and in different ways that are meaningful to them. I think that is awesome, like especially since it's a holiday that is so joyful and focused on plenty, but also to be a a pause, you know, to have that moment of reflection in this space that is like bright and plentiful is I think a great 
place to start a year. And, and I think it's really interesting how we see the summer solstice pop up. Um, to quote a historian who will be using quite a bit of her work today, Natalie Kononenko, a ritual is an essential part of human existence. If suppressed by political or cultural forces, it can lie dormant for generations, but then, at the opportune time, reemerge. And we'll talk about the ways that the summer solstice and midsummer just keeps reemerging and reinventing itself as cultural celebration. I love that. That's really beautiful. Well, then to sort of like get us, you know, going into how this ritual has changed over time i guess we should start with the pre-christian european celebrations of the summer solstice um do you have information about yeah so how how what did those um practices look like um how was this the summer solstice sort of celebrated and recognized in a pre-christian there's definitely some analogs um in pre-Christian and classical Europe, we do see a lot of sort of difference. In the Roman context, this was the celebration of Fors Fortuna. So Fortuna was the goddess of fortune and sort of the personification of luck and chance. And she had the Wheel of Fortune, not to be confused with the game show. Um, <laughs> But I, I mean, that that's where it's taken from, right? I mean, it's this symbol where you have your goddess, Fortuna, and she spins the wheel at random. And as the positions change on the wheel, some people will suffer misfortune, while others will gain in luck, in wealth and health. And it was very much this idea of, you know, chance and change. And I think it makes sense that a lot of her celebrations were around June 24th, it's near the solstice, and particularly in Rome, the Romans would go down the Tiber River in boats to her temple and have celebrations there. And it was linked to this idea of the solstice being a time of great change and, you know, the heavens themselves were changing. In going further north, you see in sort of the Germanic areas, Scandinavia, the British Isles, there does seem to be, I mean, there's not a lot of written sources for this, but there is evidence that there would have been some form of celebration, bonfires, perhaps, um, some kind of acknowledgement of the changing of the seasons in this way. And in Eastern Europe, you had what was called Kupala Night, which was another sort of ancient festival that involved rituals to do with water and bonfires. So it's, again, this idea of sort of the, like, light and warmth and plenty. Cool. That's, like, really fascinating. It seems like there's a lot of um, diversity in the way that this was celebrated in the pre-Christian period. How did these holidays really start to change, you know, with the spread of Christianity across I mean, Europe? In some ways they they did change, but in a lot of ways they were they they stayed the same in a lot of aspects is the thing. Um, it's yeah, I mean it's the the church obviously had a very vested interest in like Christianizing these pagan celebrations, right? Like you're you're not going to be very popular if you come in like if you roll into town and say hey you can't have fun anymore you're not allowed to have celebrations like nobody is going to want to get on board (laughs) um so like you don't want that and there's also this public backlash when you do try to do that right like so i mean partially this was just a fully pragmatic move right Um, But we also do see this theological concepts that come in with it because basically you get these theological ideas that Jesus's birthday, right? Christ comes into the world on December 25th, which is roughly the winter solstice. And so you get these theological writings saying that Christ came into the world on that day 
because he was supposed to be right like that's the shortest day of the year it's the most darkness and christ is the light of god who is coming into this dark world and then every day after that gets longer and brighter because he brings light into the world right yeah okay yeah so then john the baptist in the bible is supposed to have been born six months before jesus was which puts him exactly at you know june 25th ish for the summer solstice half birthday yeah exactly (laughs) they're half birthdays so john the baptist comes into the world on the longest day of the year on midsummer but then every day after that gets shorter until you hit christmas again which is when christ comes into the world and makes the light return basically so there was this theological idea that john the baptist represents humanity and how all of us are mortal and just like how every day after his birth gets shorter and shorter our own lives get shorter right like it's this idea of human mortality and fragility and then in the cycle you have christ who appears at the darkest time of the year to bring the light of god back into the world basically interesting the half birthday sounds pretty bleak not gonna lie yeah i mean (laughs) i'm not gonna lie to you john the baptist it's it's a it's a pretty bleak story all around for him if we're being honest (laughs) I mean, you know, he lives by himself, lives off of, like, honey and insects, gets his head chopped off, you know. (laughs) Not a great time. (laughs) Not a great time for John, let's say that. (laughs) But, I mean, you know, for a long time there, he got celebrated a lot. Yeah, well. So that that was great. That's a plus. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know. So, yeah, and one of the other reasons that john the baptist was potentially associated with the solstice is because again he's a baptist right like he's putting people into water he's you know washing away your sins and a lot of these pre-christian rituals also would include an aspect of water of ritual washing bathing swimming in sacred wells and ponds and that sort of thing so there's also that idea tied into it Interesting. That's like, yeah, that's a pretty neat lineup there of, you know, thematic relevance. Yeah, so this is sort of the first big shift we see in the summer solstice and midsummer, right? Where it's going from this pagan worship of pagan gods, the sun, the land, and instead is now being integrated into the Christian calendar year and a Christian celebration. Yeah, so I'm like really interested in in that part of the shift because the it's interesting that the pagan holiday is really very much about these physical things, you know, the sun, the movement of the planet, the land, and people's relationship to the land and the sun. And the Christian calendar is very the theology around it is very removed from the corporeal and I'm interested in how you take such physical practices and they become more representational of this very like spiritual calendar um, of remembering people saints Christ all of those things from what was these pagan practices about the, the the physical nature of life and time? Yeah, so I I think it's especially in the earlier Middle Ages, it's a much more porous kind of idea, right? Like yeah. people were Christianized very slowly, and in a lot of cases, you know, we have these. You know, in a lot of cases, you had people where it was very much a, like, oh, yeah, sure, like, Jesus sounds cool, we'll add him to the pantheon, like, why not? <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> or, one of um, many. Yeah, you know, I mean, it it really was, like, there's, um, you know, different different stories of 
you know, people and villages going and, you know, there's building a church, but then, you know, also doing some pagan stuff on the side because, like, you know, you want to hedge your bets a bit. Um, pagan stuff on the side. You know. You can, like, you, you can you have go a little to... paganism as a treat. <laughs> absolutely you know i mean you've got your little you've got your uh your thor's hammer pendant you flip that upside down devon it's a cross like there you go and the other thing is you have this very much um syncretic beliefs right for a long time and this sort of a lot of the time integration of folk beliefs and that's done very very intentionally right because again, if you roll into town and say, throw out everything you ever knew, we have a new religion for you, most people are going to tell you, you know, get out, buddy. Yeah. Like, no thanks. <laughs> Whereas instead, in a lot of ways, there were ways that certain aspects of sort of the traditional culture and traditional practices would get sort of absorbed into christianity and that was the norm for a long long time but i mean also as the middle ages wear on you do start to see more and more sort of christianized versions of things and less pagan belief in general interesting and that's just a oh sorry i didn't mean to cut no you off. i was just i'm just saying that that's that's really cool yeah, and, you know, because a lot of it is, like, right, let's say your first generation, uh, the missionary or the priest comes into the village, they start preaching, they build a church, and, you know, that first generation kind of tolerates it, and it's like, sure, whatever, but, you know, the kids who are growing up with this, right, like, this is their norm, and then their kids grow up, and over time, right, you're getting less and less of pagan belief that is surviving and more and more christian belief basically that's being that is um becoming the norm in the community right so like even as time goes on a lot of these older cultural practices and customs stay the same but now they've taken on these new meanings because you've had these generations that are growing up with Christianity is their religion, right? Yeah. Like, so the like you have a a shift from this is literally going to help fertilize the earth to this is how you know we represent our like spiritual connection to God. I mean, I think it kind of becomes a both and. Because especially before the Protestant Reformation, like, Mm -hmm. there is not a hard line between what is sort of spiritual and what's physical, right? So take, for example, a lot of magic in the Middle Ages, right? right, Like, there was natural magic, and that was seen as a good thing. Because if you were someone Mm -hmm. who had the education to know you know well this kind of plant like these are the properties of these plants and these are the properties of these minerals or this kind of animal and you could use that to bring about Mm -hmm. good luck good harvests that was seen as fine and good because god created the world god said that everything was good so as long as you were using natural um items Mm -hmm. basically you were in the clear Whereas it, magic was only bad if it was dark magic or magic that involved you, you know, making a pact with the devil or trying to summon a demon or something, right? Right. And it's really not until the Protestant Reformation that there's any issue whatsoever seen with, like, you know, natural magic practices and Christianity. Like, that's not really an issue in the Middle Ages for the most part. Okay, that's so cool. Yeah. So there's, yeah, so that's where you can really see how 
syncretic, the early European, like, pagan to Christian ideas were. But it was pretty easy to map Christianity onto these pre-existing rituals. Yeah, absolutely. And it didn't necessarily mean that you weren't genuinely Christian, which is something that comes about much later. Um, We Mm -hmm. see this, you know, this is essentially Protestant Reformation propaganda in the 1500s saying, oh, well, you know, these people are going and they have their sacred springs. So, you know, secretly they're pagans. But then, you know, what happens a few centuries later, you get Protestants opening up healing spas where, you know, the water is good for you if you go into it. Ah, fascinating. So it's very much this, um, it's very much this cyclical kind of thing where, you know, you, you do get these hardline ideas that show up in the 1500s but then you know by the time the 17 and 1800s roll around it's beginning to soften again okay oh that's so cool but yeah so i mean i think you you kind of end up with this both and situation to come back yeah. to fertilizing the fields and stuff, right? Where like the, the physical and the the spiritual existing at once in one ritual. Yeah, exactly. Because you know you do have people saying, well, okay, no, we do need to perform these rituals in order to ensure a good harvest, but it's also being seen as spiritual in that. Like, ultimately, it is the Christian God who decides on, like, the outcome of the world and his plans, right? So it's sort of this this overlap of ideas. So then, like, what do, does the rituals and celebrations, like, actually look like? Like, what are people doing? What is the actual ritual that we're talking about? All right. First, first things first, you got to get rowdy. Oh, man. <laughs> the, <laughs> all of these festivals included basically different forms of breaking social norms. This could be by... All about that. Right? <laughs> um, people would verbally attack and insult the authority figures... Uh, people would get drunk, they'd get rowdy, they'd dance, they'd maybe flirt and be a little more, you know, just a little, let loose a little bit. <laughs> um, right? Wow. Anybody who was living <laughs> in a town, right, they would hold these festivals outside the city limits, out in the fields, because technically the city didn't have jurisdiction to uh, basically like do anything about their behavior so it was quite literally a lawless festival oh man finding the loopholes i love midsummer right and there's a lot of issues in the middle ages where you have these towns that like try to they'll sort of try to crack down on it occasionally and then yeah everyone just goes outside and is like well we're outside of your jurisdiction now, so you can't do anything about it. <laughs> Catch me outside, how about that? <laughs> oh, that's great. I also, I really love the idea of the, the sort of subverting authority roles at this time. Like, this moment of pause to deal with your issues with authority and especially in these like you know feudal states like yeah that's awesome exactly it's this time where you can sort of push back against these social norms and i mean again we're going to we're going to quote natalie kononenko because she's just this is great 
Quote, ritual tends to be a time outside time and thus a period out of the ordinary. Normally prohibited behaviors are sanctioned, making ritual a natural vehicle for escaping oppression. That's so cool. And it reminds me of, you know, because we're talking about the sort of dual nature of Midsummer and Christmas, it reminds me of like traditional caroling you know, coming up to the wealthy or managerial or feudal lord's house and literally just singing for food and stuff and saying, we're not going to go away until you give us pudding. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I love that there's that at both ends of this seasonal year. Yeah, it's a very nice, like... You know, we we have these very sanitized ideas of Christmas, especially, I think. Um, But yeah, I mean, historically in context, these were often very subversive holidays and they were a time when you could, you know, push back a bit on what was the established norm. Oh, that's so great. And I think that's like a wonderful idea to, you know, really bring into life especially right now in turbulent times that we can use these ritual practices these ancient practices as a way to think about and engage with our relationships with authority and what is a like valid moment of authority and to take midsummer as a period of pause to really think about that i think is incredibly poignant and timely yeah that's i i really like that (laughs) so other than getting rowdy and drunk (laughs) what what were what were people doing i mean we talked about before that this was a um a ritual of fertility and the land um how were people bringing that into these the, the physicality of the rituals, other than... Yes. Going out and essentially having a, a bush party. Um, <laughs> I mean, the first big thing is, as you said, fertility, right? Um, let's start with fertility of the land. So, in a lot of cases around midsummer, you see these rituals around bonfires. And, you know, this is happening throughout Europe, throughout the Middle Ages. St. John's Night is incredibly popular and just dotted throughout the whole landscape on that night from everywhere you would see people setting up these huge bonfires and the idea was that this was supposed Mm -hmm. to sort of ritually and also but also quite literally it was supposed to cleanse the area Um, it was supposed to drive away everything from witches to demons to dragons and sort of also was supposed to kind of bring down blessings upon you and upon your land. So there's this idea of fire and this light and warmth and kind of using that both as protection and as a a way to bring favor to your land and the village's communal land. Oh, I like that like physical representation of the getting rowdy as well with the destruction as cleansing yes and rebirthing so like with the social aspect as well and then coming into the physical relationship with the the physical land is amazing yeah absolutely and you also then had fertility right as the fertility of the people in your village so, yeah. <laughs> so this is also a lot of the time when we actually still see at this point the links to uh, Force Fortuna in the Roman tradition, because you okay. get a lot of this fortune telling, but it all has to do with young women and young men of marriageable age and like finding out what your life is going to look like. 
So well, there you go. There was um, like in Sweden, there was a midsummer tradition that I mean, it might still be happening now, where girls would pick seven flowers from seven different fields, and then you would put the yes. flower under your pillow on Midsummer Night Eve, and that night you're supposed to. Um, you are supposed to get a vision of your future husband in your dream. Oh, wow. But then there's also in the Eastern European context, you also have these sorts of fortune-telling slash matchmaking rituals. Mm-hmm. So in some villages, it was traditional, and this is actually something that still happens today, where all the unmarried but yeah all the unmarried girls in the village would make these wreaths of flowers and then attach candles onto them and then you light the candles and send them floating out onto a river or a lake and based on the direction of which way the wreath floated that could indicate you know when the girl was going to get married or which one was going to get married first um, when the candle burnt out would signify how long her life was going to be. Oh my gosh. Yep. So if your candle went out first, you'd be the first to die, and then vice versa oh, if your morbid. candle went out last. But there's also traditions of then the wreaths being put out to float and then the unmarried boys in the village running out to grab them. So then... Oh. You know, cool. who the if if a boy yeah. wanted to be with a certain girl, he could go out and try to get her wreath. Yeah. There's also, again, from Eastern Europe, um, a ritual around a bonfire where unmarried couples would mm-hmm. hold hands and jump over the, like, the bonfire together, like, once it had burnt down a little bit. You know, they're not... The embers? Yes, yes. Like, the embers slash, like... You know, the fire is still going, but it's not, like, you know, enormous because, yeah, you know, safety. <laughs> um, so if you were able to hold hands and you could both jump across the fire without letting go of your hands, that meant that you would marry within the coming year. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of emphasis both on sort of the fertility of the land, but also the fertility of the people within the village and sort of making these matches and making these marriages. Kind of another nod to fertility is the fertility of the sort of natural world, the uncultivated plants. Um, Oh, right. Because this is when, like, things are coming into bloom and... Yes. Trees in the forest are bursting into life and your allergies are acting up and... <laughs> Getting all that pollen in your <laughs> Sorry, face. that might have been a little... Might have been a little personal. <laughs> My experience of midsummer. <laughs> well, that's because you haven't done the right rituals, Devin. Have you hung nettles uh, in your windows? I do not know where I would find nettles but well, i'll try <laughs> go find some and hang them in your window and that's going to prevent the witches from cursing you oh obviously <laughs> right, it's, not pollen. it's a curse yeah i've been cursed but i mean we see in sweden and a lot like out throughout scandinavia um people would have a maypole that's covered in flowers right so you have this very mm-hmm. A phallic symbol that is being planted <laughs> into the earth and is covered with flowers, which are a plant's reproductive organs. Ah, this is such a subtle holiday. Right? It's very, very <laughs> subtle about the, uh, the fertility bit. <laughs> but we also have, again, in um, the Ukrainian and Eastern European context, you have the idea of the magical fern flower. So at midnight on St. John's night, there is supposed to be a magical fern that blooms in the forest and it makes a single red flower and it only lasts while the clock is striking 12 at midnight. So young people would go into the forest and search for this blooming fern. If you were able to find the red flower and then carry it back out of the forest 
safely because, you know, midsummer could also be a, a time when, you know, there's maybe demons and witches floating around. So obviously you have to protect your flower. If you were able to successfully do that, you would be able to have this flower that was supposed to bring you wealth and health and a long, happy life. So, you know, again, we're seeing the fertility of not only the land and the people, but also this idea of the plants that are growing, not just wildly, but even magically. Interesting. And so this is the red flower that is so popular in like Eastern European artistic and folk motifs. Like, yes, that you'd see in embroidery and on uh, pottery and stuff. Uh, in some cases, yes. In others, that's um, more so poppies, which is also okay. very popular. But I will say um, a lot of music out of Eastern Europe, there are uh, a lot of like romantic love songs talking about the red fern flower. Aww, that's so nice. Yeah, no, my favorite is um, the one where it, it's a man singing to a woman saying um, basically don't bother going and looking for this red flower uh, because, you know, our love is all we need and I already have the perfect life with you. Aww. It's really cute. (laughs) That's like a much much cuter version of the Beatles, like, can't buy me love. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And also just to kind of bring it back to the fertility of the people, I would also like to point out that this would have been you know, one of the few sanctioned times when, like, young people could just be alone together. Ah, there we go. So it's, it's again, we're bringing it back to this, like, this is a time when things that normally are not allowed right. are happening. Yeah, you get to be unchaperoned in the woods, like, hmm. <laughs> oh, under the moonlight exactly it's very romantic you're looking for the love fern flower yeah that's so pretty yeah so then i guess my other question is like so where then does uh in all of this romantic woodland frolicking does (laughs) john the baptist come in well um Again, this is this is sort of circling back to what I was saying later or earlier. <laughs> this is circling back to what I said earlier where, you know, in a lot of ways you do have this sort of you know, veneer of Christianity added mm-hmm. to it which does become important over time. Um a lot of cities did have religious processions involved. Uh Florence notably had religious processions for John the Baptist. Um you would maybe have a church service, that kind of thing. Also, there were typically, in a lot of these cases, aspects of cleansing yourself with water. Um, Okay, there we go. So, you know, you would go to the holy spring and bathe, or people would go swimming or wash off certain parts of... um, You know, it was a a time to basically clean yourself. Uh, both ritually and literally. There's also, there would be effigies constructed in certain instances of this. Uh, And then those effigies would actually end up being dismembered and drowned by throwing them into a body of water. So a little morbid. It's a bit (laughs) morbid, but you know, that's, you gotta do what you gotta do. And in other cases, you would dismember your effigy and then scatter the pieces around the fields to ensure a good harvest. Interesting. So you see these different sort of layers of ritual happening, right? Like we go from a pagan holiday that is outwardly religious to a Christianized version of this holiday that still retains a lot of pagan aspects, but also has... Christian aspects added to it 
And over time, we see sort of the pagan aspects lose that meaning, at least for the vast majority of people, and just become, in many ways, a secular holiday. Like, even in the context of the Middle Ages, like, this was a relatively secular holiday as compared to many others in the Christian calendar. Right. Like Easter, what have you. Yeah, because, I mean, you look at, say, Easter or Christmas, like, in the Middle Ages, right? It it involves a lot of church service and a lot more mm-hmm. overt religiosity as compared to Midsummer, where, yeah, it's, it's a lot of it is going outside the city limits and getting drunk, like... A much more, like, just social uh, holiday and ritual. Yes, it's very much a social holiday and ritual, And it also, in a lot of ways, had very practical purposes, like, you know, matchmaking, so that your future of the village is ensured, so that you have these couples. Another big part of it was the gathering of herbs. This is recorded both in uh, Denmark and in early medieval England. Um, There are, like, this was the night when sort of the wise men, wise women, the kind of village doctor was supposed to go out and gather all of the different herbs and flowers and plants that would be needed for the upcoming year to treat medical conditions. Right. Um, Because, again, yeah, there's this idea of there are certain times of the year where there's, you know, this is the better time of the year to harvest this. Yeah, and everything's coming into bloom, so there's, like, the practicality of knowing that there will be plenty. Yes, and it's also this practicality of knowing that there's plenty, but also the, um, also there's a lot of astrology involved in it, and because this is, again, something that, you know, we see from the classical world that gets relatively christianized because basically you get this idea that well okay uh, god created the heavens the stars so obviously if you know how to look for those signs and say oh well this is the summer solstice and this is when the days are the longest which means that this is this is the correct time to go out and gather all these you know all these plants because this is when they're at their best and then i can preserve them for the coming year Um, because I'll I'll have sort of captured that moment of power. Little question. (laughs) Um, Yay. About, so this, the effigy that's being torn up and drowned and the bonfires, is this, like, the, the combination of these things, is that sort of where we get this pop culture idea of like the wicker man that was in horror movies and things like that did you i did not look at that but i mean i do think you could probably pretty easily draw a line from like these ideas to the present because we still see a lot of a lot of these things echoed in our present in ways that we don't necessarily think about like Right? Like, even today, we know that, like, June is sort of the height of wedding season. Like... Yeah, that's Right? Like, why do we have all these flowers at our weddings? Like, why do we get married in June? Like, we have central heat and air now. You could get married any time of year, and yet... (laughs) Yeah. That's so cool, the way that these things, like, hold over into our our modern lives. So then talking about that, about the way that these things have sort of flown, like the way that these things have continued to exist in our modern lives in ways that we might not expect them to, are there ways that it is overtly still being celebrated or people performing these rituals still in, uh, in Europe? Or well, in some way? cases, yes. Like it's still very common throughout Scandinavia to have these midsummer rituals, and 
Um, there are places in Eastern Europe, specifically Ukraine and Belarus, that have brought back um, Ivan Kopalo Night, which is the um, John the Baptist uh, translated. Okay. And in that case, it's actually really interesting because there is sort of this new wave of people in, I, I don't know as much about Belarus, but in Ukraine specifically from what I was reading, where this festival in particular was sort of used as a way to carve out this post-Soviet identity. Um, because th this celebration was actually officially banned in the Soviet Union. Oh, wow. Like, totally? Um, yeah, like, it was completely banned. You weren't allowed to do this, right? Because yeah. when the Soviet Union is starting off, right, mm -hmm. like, all the divination that was going on, dancing around bonfires, this sort of thing, you know, this was anathema in a society that was supposed to be like this workers utopia where we don't have superstition anymore we were scientifically advanced we're not going to do these like peasant village rituals right yeah i mean it doesn't really work with state socialism to have another power that isn't that's that state it, exactly and it also ran really counter to um like the enforced collectivized farming right because you go from right. right like you look at a traditional like ukrainian village it's you know farmers are working with their land in very specific ways and there are these ancient traditions you're probably you know tending your fields in a very certain way and you have this kind of connection with your land and working it um, whereas the collective farms, right, it was basically trying to set up a factory farming system in a lot of ways. Yeah, the um, forced industrialization of agriculture. Yeah, exactly. And obviously, in an industrialized farm, there's no place for people to be, like, scattering the remnants of a torn-up effigy to make the crops grow better, right? Yeah, it's less a relationship with the land and more an extraction. Yes, it becomes this much more... Um, it, it's, or, or, or at least it was supposed to become this much more like the land is a tool to be used rather than this land is a part of our community and something that we love and that we care for. That's so interesting. And so then with the fall of the Soviet Union, you say that there's a resurgence. So is that I'm assuming that it's not people just coming out and being like, I am one with nature, but more of like a uh, like nationalist or uh, like rebuilding a community and identity. Yeah, it was in a lot of ways not. I, I think, again, it's a situation where on one hand you have it was very meaningful for people on more than one level because there had been people who had continued to do aspects of this throughout the Soviet period. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, in, in a lot of ways, right, like, you can, like, sure, you can crack down on building a giant bonfire, but you're not going to go house to house and, like, check that no one's hanging herbs in the window, like, or yeah. check that, right, like because that was also part of it, was decorating your house with these different, you know, with different greenery and flowers. And it's like, well, you can't really enforce that. That's just not practical at that point. Yeah. You know, especially in the context of, like, World War Two and the aftermath. It's like, oh, we don't have gosh. time for this. Like, we don't have the resources to enforce every little thing. And... Yeah. Yeah, there was, even already in, in, like, the 70s, there had been a little bit of easing off where people were, you know, starting to be allowed to kind of practice some of these rituals again because there was this renewed interest in, like, and sort of a, a softening of regulations towards, you know, traditional cultural practices. 
But yeah, we see in the post-Soviet period this revival of this ancient crop ritual that in a lot of ways was about affirming your identity, right? Because you want to have these rituals that you feel like are your own and that you get to celebrate in your own way. Um, especially because in the Soviet Union, right, when th there were celebrations mm -hmm. and, you know, official holidays, but most of these performances and festivals would feature, you know, the main focus would be on Russian traditional dress, traditional songs, like the Russian, like Russians would have the center stage, whereas everyone else from the other countries would be sort of peripheral, right? Like you yeah. were not the focus there. So this in a lot of ways was about sort of local and to an extent nationalistic pride of people saying, no, we're going to, we're, we're going to have our own culture again and we're going to celebrate things the way we always had in our village and, you know, do things in this way. So in a lot of ways it was this, it, it's come back not necessarily as a religious holiday in mm -hmm. any sense, but more so as this sort of community, um, community holiday that's about affirming your identity and as a form of sort of resistance to Russian hegemony. That's so beautiful. I think that's interesting that so in this post-Soviet way that it is very much about like reclaiming this relationship with the land um, because the as far as I know the only real uh, midsummer practice in well, like continued, not real, but like continued extensive practice of midsummer um, in North America is in Quebec with Saint Jean Baptiste as the Fête de Nationale, so the the holiday of the nation of Quebec. Oh, interesting. Um, because there, there, and this could be, I could be wrong about this, um, but I have not found an indigenous holiday that is like directly analogous to the European Midsummer. But mm -hmm. in Quebec, um, in the mid 19th century with the Patriot movement, um, of sort of, you know, like trying to create a government in Quebec that was run by the Quebecois, by the French Canadians. Mm -hmm. Um, you have a newspaper man who, he ran uh, Le Manoeuf, the one of the Patriot newspapers, essentially wanted to have a festival that was for French Canadians to celebrate their French Canadian identity in the way that Irish Canadians were able to with St. Patrick. And so that's why they chose the um, John the Baptist Day, St. Jean-Baptiste, and it started out as like a parade of all of these, you know, community organizations um, in the French Canadian communities to like celebrate being French Canadian in this time when they were like very much um, oppressed by an English regime. And throughout the century, it became more and more important. And in 1924, officially became the national holiday of Quebec um, because Quebec you know, exists as a sort of national identity within the Confederacy of Canada mm -hmm. and then became even more important with the Quiet Revolution in the 1960s that you know made it so that Quebec is a French-speaking province that the French culture is very deeply protected in France and this Fête de Nationale has always been like really important and there's like whole songs and stuff this is the, the celebration where O Canada came from and other songs about how wonderful it is to be French Canadian but it, it, it is it's not a like agriculture based 
it's very much about like parades and processions and this political identity rather than like what it was as midsummer which i think is like an interesting transition mm-hmm. no i think that's yeah i think it's fantastic and i i think yeah i mean we see that it is sort of this continuation of this idea of Midsummer uh, slash St. John the Baptist Day as this holiday of kind of resistance of the norm and of pushing back against oppression and against hegemony, basically. Yeah, I really, I love that. I think that is definitely in our quest to find what of historical rituals we want to bring into contemporary life. I think that is at the top of the list yeah i really (laughs) any any ritual we can fight oppression with i think ritual as resistance is a very important and valid thing so then sonia is there anything um is there anything in our conversation um about this this has really been your (laughs) episode that that we didn't talk about or that you want to like really sort of drive home um as a as a little conclusion yeah i guess the thing i really want to drive home is this idea that people don't just engage in rituals and engage in traditions just because it's something they've always done rituals have meaning and that meaning can change over time but that doesn't make it not important to the people who are doing it. And we see this, I think, really, really well illustrated in Midsummer, which then becomes St. John the Baptist Night, which now has, in a lot of places, sort of changed form again into, you know, as we said, in some places becoming more of a, like, cultural slash national pride type of holiday rather than being about necessarily religion or crop fertility or anything like that and i just think it's really important to keep that in mind that you can hold on to different parts of the past and just use the parts that are working for you basically yeah which is i mean really our mission in this project which speaking of which we're going to start the blog as well just a little bump for our blog we're going to have a couple of summer craft projects that we're going to work through and Sonia is going to have a recipe yes we're going to attempt some historical recipes (laughs) yes so that you can bring these rituals into your life without having to start a major fire. Although if you really want to, as well, just go outside your city limits. Just go outside your city limits. They can't stop you there. <laughs> I am not going to advocate arson. We did talk about this before. We are not advocating arson on our podcast. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> well, on on that note, we can get back to uh, Rituals Resistance. If you do want to get involved in the massive organized resistance that is happening across North America and now the world, there are some very easy financial ways you can do that, or you can volunteer with any of these organizations as well. Yeah, so the National Bail Fund, your local bail fund, any of the Black Lives Matter affiliated groups, the NAACP and the ACLU, especially the ACLU, is really going hard on litigating the aggression towards protesters that is happening with the police in the United States. So if you would like to volunteer or if you have the funds to donate with that, and of course, if it is safe for you to do so, take a stand with the other protesters across North America and across the world. And until next week... Stay safe, take care of each other, and do what you can to make the world a slightly better place.